This week on Writers, Inc. It's varied over the years, but most of the time I roughly know what's going to happen in the first chapter, get myself into the second chapter and start praying. I think I am actually an old-fashioned storyteller. And on the process of writing, I rise at 5.30 in the morning. I work from 6 to 8 for two hours. I work from 10 till 12 for two hours. I work from 2 to 4 for two hours. I work from 6 to 8 for two hours. I'm in bed by 9.30, 10, up again the next day at 5.30. The first draft usually takes 50 days, 300 hours. And the draft you have in front of you uh, is the 14th draft. I wish after all these years there was a shortcut, but I'm afraid there isn't. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. I really wanted to start off talking about the Queen again, but I think we've sort of exhausted that <laughs> that line of conversation. So, so JD, I want to ask you what's up in the uh, in the upside down these days. First of all, with Queen, like I almost felt like I, I was going to have to put like, like a written statement out apologizing for what I said last week. I'm like, we should probably just steer clear of that altogether because I'll just get myself in trouble. Uh, yeah, so this is this is a weird one. Um, so everybody's seen Stranger Things. So the, the house that Winona Ryder and her family in the show lived in is actually for sale in real life. And my wife found it yesterday on Zillow and she's like investigating this, thinking it might be a cool Airbnb. Um, and like the more I think about it, you know, like that that might actually work. I mean, it's 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 rinky dink. I mean, if anybody who's seen the show remembers it, it's a tiny little house, you know, very small, but it's on six acres of land. Um, the entire place needs to be gutted. I, from what I can tell from the pictures, I don't think they actually use the real interior for the show, uh, but it's, it's fairly close. So like you could actually turn it into that. Um, and the people that are selling it, like they're fed up because so many people are just showing up on their doorstep. Um, so they like, they, they left the house like, like two or three years ago and just stopped living there. Um, and it's been sitting there vacant because like people just like, it's on a tour and like people are just showing up. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, it's, that's like, uh, the people who lived in the house from Breaking Bad, uh, they, they had to move because people kept throwing pizza on top of their house. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. <laughs> well, you know, in all, in all honesty, that's kind of why I'm on the fence about it. Like it's for sale for 300,000, which, you know, in today's market, that's really not that bad, especially if it's got a big draw like that. Um, it was on sale for 330,000 a couple of years ago and didn't sell. So that actually tells me that it's probably, you know, it might be possible to get it for a little bit less because anybody watching the, the interest rates, like they've gone up a ridiculous amount in the last couple of years, um, which means real estate prices are coming down. But what I'm honestly, worried about are the, the looky loose, you know, so like we yeah. could rent it out as a stranger things house all day long, but like the people that just come by to grab a you know picture of this picture of that, um, or do stuff like that, that might be destructive. Like we don't have anybody on site, you know, so it's, it would be a difficult property to monitor. I'm, I'm totally unqualified to give real estate advice. So I figured I'll give some real estate advice, <laughs> uh, in, uh, a Christmas story, um, was, uh, part of it was filmed in Cleveland 
and the house for the Christmas story is is a house in Cleveland and it's now a museum. So someone bought it and and they restored it to what it looks like in the movie. Now I it's a little bit different in that I think they filmed some of the interior scenes inside the house. But it's a it's a big tourist destination, and they sell they sell tickets to go through. So I mean, you might be onto something there. I mean, even if it's not an Airbnb, maybe it could be some type of uh, you know commercial property. They do this a lot, um, and there's there's a uh, Property Brothers show um, about the Brady Bunch house. They actually bought the house out in California, and it's not not in Beverly Hills, but it's pretty close to there. Um, you know, originally for the show, like they just used the exterior, all the interior stuff was all on sound stages. Um, so HGTV came out with Property Brothers, and they had a, like a really cool series like six or seven episodes where they took the interior of the actual house and turned it into the real Brady Bunch house um, which is fun to watch because like physically like the rooms and stuff don't really fit in the real structure like the, the floor plan and everything is completely backwards from the way that it was presented in the show but they actually made it work um, using like optical illusions and just putting additions on that were hidden all, all kinds of crazy stuff um, so anybody that's into that kind of thing check it out if you want to buy the Stranger Things house we'll we'll put it in the show notes in case somebody wants to get out there and, and try and outbid us um, I'm <laughs> I'm on the fence about this one. I don't know if we should pick it up. Uh, I was going to say, I don't know which house I'm less interested to visit, the Brady Bunch house or the Christmas Story house. <laughs> that's the most overrated Christmas movie ever. Uh, that's your opinion. Uh, I'll, I'll withhold mine. <laughs> it's all, it, it, People only care about it because TNT shows it for 24 hours because they just happen to own the rights. <laughs> Some classic lines there, man. Classic lines. Nah, it's yeah. all right. Back, back it's not as Die Hard. That's a way better Christmas movie. What about Top Gun? Have you guys seen Maverick yet? I haven't seen it yet. Really? No, yeah. You're, you're like, it, it's like a billion, a billion some dollars. Oh, well, we, we went back and we watched the original one and we just watched the new one. Um, and it's good. You know, like I, it, I'm sitting there watching and thinking like, I, I just, I wanted to find heard something it's wrong. Amazing. Yeah. Like I wanted to find something wrong. Like I wanted to rag on this movie cause I'm that asshole who has to find something wrong with everything. Um, but no, it's, it's good. It's entertaining. Um, the thing that really got me though, is like they actually made the actors learn to fly planes. Like I didn't realize that because like the, the shots are all spectacular and like when you watch them and like it doesn't look like CGI and I didn't really put much thought into it. But, you know, like their faces are bending based on the, you know, pull of the, the aircraft and all this crazy stuff. But like, yeah, Tom Cruise already knew how to fly and anybody who actually wanted to be in, in the pilot seat in the movie, he made them learn. Um, so they're all out there actually flying these jets for real, which you know, really added a lot um, from a sound standpoint. Like we've got um, it's I, we've got 12 speakers plus the two subs and, and the center speakers. So it's I forget what it is, 14 point two surround or something crazy but like they took advantage of all of that so like the jets are literally flying over you because we've got six overhead speakers but great movie i loved it i was gonna say that's probably i was gonna make comment that's probably why it's good because you're watching it in your theater are you uh are you showing avatar in 3d in your theater starting this weekend <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to check the schedule and get back to you. Um, okay. I, I didn't like the first Avatar, so I don't know if I'll watch any of them. Well, I think there's, this is the first one. They're re-putting it in the theater before they do the second one. Well, there's like, I think five or six of them all coming. Like, they're filming them all at the same time. I don't know. Um, the yeah, first one was an amazing experience in the IMAX. Like, it was actually, I mean, it was really cool to be there and see it. But then once you just see it, you're just like, oh, yeah, this is just Dances with Wolves with Blue People. That's basically <laughs> all it is. <laughs> so oh man at the movies Anyways, we'll be right back after this what's going on in publishing <laughs> yeah we should probably talk publishing right i heard something's happening over at spotify yeah i heard something about that too but uh i don't know exactly what's happening <laughs> what's happening over there zach <laughs> it's a great place to go listen to music so no we recently one of the last couple episodes we talked about uh you know how they were going to get into it and everything i mean pretty recently um 
and they launched out of nowhere. <laughs> they out of nowhere. When was it, Jay? Like Monday, I think. Um, uh, yeah, Monday or Tuesday of this tu- week. Maybe Tuesday. Report, yeah, Monday uh, Tuesday. Spotify came out and said, "Hey, now you have three hundred thousand audiobooks on Spotify." And uh, when you go to the app and everything, um, it, it was right there on the front page. They were showing like the Dark Tower and everything, and it answered some questions. Um, so as of now. Uh, and I say as of now, cause you never know how it could change. Uh, they're not doing any kind of subscription or, um, credit system or anything. It's just, you just buy the books. Um, and, uh, and, and so when you go to look at an audiobook on Spotify, um, it has a little lock that on there and then you have to purchase it. Um, of course, if you're on an Apple device, you can't purchase it from your iPhone or whatever. Um, it, it recommends to send you a link uh, and it'll send you a link to the to the book, so then you can look at it on a web browser, because um, Apple, of course, has they take thirty percent if they sell anything in an app. So Spotify is not going to do that. Um, but uh, it's I haven't you know the prices are kind of varied. Um, uh, like some you know me and Jay and some other friends were talking, and you know they were looking at like the the Dark Tower, and it was basically the price of a credit. So they were kind of like, well, that's what they're doing. But like I have. Um, the final awakening series is on there. That's with Tantor. So they, uh, they put that in there and I have like a trilogy box set that's 30 bucks. So it, in that instance, it's still better to be an audio member, an audible member and go and use your credit towards that. Cause it's going to be about half the price. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's there, it's on there. So we're going to, we'll see what happens. How many emails do you think Amazon got this week uh, asking to be released from their seven year <laughs> exclusive contract. <laughs> you know, I don't know, man. Like it's a, uh, you know, uh, probably a lot. I mean, to answer your question, probably a lot. I I'm very much. So my books are exclusive. Um, and, and the reason I did that, like I obviously knew something like this could happen, like that, uh, that a big disruptor, specifically Spotify could come in and do this. But at the time I did those contracts, it's 40% royalties instead of 25%. So like a lot of these contracts I did like seven years ago. And at that time it's like, well, audible is it like everyone goes to audible for their audiobooks. So like, I don't regret my, my personal decision to do it. And I'm also not going to go and pull any of my books out right away. Cause I want to see how everything happens with this. Um, cause personally, like I still would rather get 40% from audible and Apple books, um, then get 20% and then hope to sell some on Spotify. Um, so I, I don't know, like it, I definitely think like you're saying, I'm sure there's a lot of people panicked and and probably did that. And from what I understand, it's pretty easy to get out of those ACX contracts. You can just email them and, uh, and you can get out of that exclusivity after but, uh, a year. Don't you have to be in at I least think a it's year? Something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, but audible, I mean, I think audible definitely knew this was coming because they are, they were running a sale on Tuesday, all audiobooks in their store up to 85% off. So like some of my audiobooks were like $6 on sale and all my books were on sale. All of ours are. It's so, a fire sale. Everything must go. It's what it looked like. <laughs> so they had to know it was coming. You know, honestly, like you, you, you lost me when you said like all those steps that you have to go through to actually buy the book. You know, like if yep. you think about it, like this is people are lazy. It's going to come down to convenience. So if you have to go through all these different hoops in order to get the book on your phone or on your device, like that's that's going to seriously hurt them. Um, like I, I bought an audio book when I was out on my run yesterday. You know, like a, there was an old D. Coons book that I that I wanted and I thought I owned it and I didn't. And like I didn't even have to stop running. You know, like I basically just looked down on my phone, did a quick search for the title, you know, hit hit one button and 
you know, five seconds later, I'm listening to it. You know, like that's, you know, we're spoiled. We're used to that. And I, you can't rewire people's brains to do, you know, to, to do more. Yeah. Cause just to be clear for anyone who's like not an audiobook user, you know, if you're, if you're an app, if you're an iPhone user, which a lot of people are, you know, you can eat, obviously you can go on Apple books and just buy an audiobook and not have to worry about it. But even on audible, you can't buy a book on audible, but you can use a credit. So if you have a credit in your account, you can just go in there and use a credit and get any audible book you want in the app. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I was telling, I was telling some people, like, I, I do think that's going to be a pretty big barrier for a lot of people. Cause a lot of people don't, ever open their web browser to do, to shop for things like that. So it is going to be a little bit of a barrier. But I mean, realistically, do you think this is something Spotify wasn't anticipating? Like, no, yeah, for sure. Right. Like, I mean, they're, they've, they've got to have some sort of um, data. They've got to have some sort of, of decision matrix that says like, yes, this is a, this is a, an additional step, but even still, this is worth a play right now. I, I just can't imagine that a company of that size and, and, and their level of ambition would not consider the fact that it's going to be problematic for Apple, Apple users. I'm, I'm guessing you guys both have iPhones because I do too. Like, I'm just curious how this, oh, you don't? Okay. So I don't. I'm an Android I, user. I, any, I have iPhone. Any, any idea how it works on an Android? Is, do they have the same problem? I don't. Um, I I looked at them. I, I started looking at titles just to get a sense of what was there and how much they were, but I didn't try and, and buy one. So maybe I should. You do should that for look if time. your phone's by you right now. You should look and see if it'll. I bet it will. But um, you know, and and I know um, I, I know one big concern that keeps coming up is, um, and I mean Jay, we've even talked about this. You might say this in the air, but I know a lot of people. It's that whole having everything in one app sort of deal, um, and. Uh, you know, I, I, I definitely was thinking about that too, because when, as we talked about, like when Spotify started doing podcasts, I went from using Apple podcast to that because there was no sense in like having two pot, like two apps when I could just have my podcast and my music together. So I just went through and subscribed on Spotify to the ones that I really wanted to keep listening to. I think this is different because like, if you already have a huge audible library, like you might want stuff in there. And I'm also, I can tell you that I'm also the type of person. Um, and I know that there's probably a small percentage, but I use whisper sync. So like a lot of times I'll read the, especially like I'm doing it right now with Billy Summers. I'm reading the book and listening to the audio book. Cause it's a long book. And so, and Spotify is not going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to like sync up with my Kindle version and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I'm sure, and I'm, and I'm also, I'm not trying to like sound super optimistic here. Like I'm not, I'm, but I'm also, a lot of people are panicking and I'm like, it's early. Like, you know, they haven't, the biggest thing I was worried about was the, um, was the subscription thing. Like here now part of your $15 a month, you can listen to all these books that hadn't happened yet. Will it? Maybe. Um, and a lot of people are also worried that this means that Audible is going to abandon the credit system. That hasn't happened yet either. And, you know, a lot of people probably like the credit system. Um, so who, who are readers? So, you know, I, I, my whole thing is everyone just like on as a whole, if you aren't exclusive, this is a great thing because now you have another huge marketplace to sell your audiobooks, which is awesome. You know, um, so uh, I, I just encourage everyone just to kind of like chill and see see where this goes before you panic. 
So I'm wondering about the, the cross branding or cross promotion that they might be able to do. So like, you know, right now we've got, you know, we're, we're all authors. We all have stuff that are, is probably in the Spotify audiobook catalog. Um, so if we ran a Spotify ad during the podcast, like would they be able to automatically target one of us or, you know, we're about to interview a, a very big name author, you know, they, they could easily drop his book in the middle of this if they wanted to do that. And I'm guessing they're not doing it yet, but I'm, they're probably thinking about that sort of thing or they, they should be if they're not. Well, again, like this is all, this is, I, I feel I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a dog in this fight. I, I don't listen to audiobooks. I honestly don't make any money from audiobooks. I'm not too concerned about it personally, but I feel like Spotify has a grand plan because like yeah. they, they acquired Acast, right? So now what you're saying, JD, maybe they won't do a dynamic ad insert from their side, but we could, right? So we could do a dynamic yeah. ad insert that ties into a Spotify audiobook. So they bought Acast. Then they bought Findaway, and now they're rolling this out. Like I, I think this is a very thoughtful, uh, strategic move, and and what we're seeing now is not the whole thing. So I, I would I would say don't freak out. Yes. But also don't assume that this is the end game for Spotify. Yeah. I, I think that I think this is one step in their plan. Well, you know, you need to get out there and write a, an, an audio book called Why I Don't Listen to Audiobooks so that you have an <laughs> audio book in the fight. So when this actually happens, you've got the, I the ability. Do, to I do link. have audio. To be honest, I do have audio nonfiction audio books. I'm, I'm not being entirely uh, straight with you guys there, uh, but okay. it's not a significant portion of my income, I guess. Gotcha. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And I agree with you, Jay. I mean, that's basically what I was trying to say is like. You know, don't panic, but also don't just like sit around and expect that this is how it's going to be. Because I agree 100 percent like this is just the rollout. They have a grand plan that I'm sure spans over several years. And I would also imagine that the publishers know a lot more than we know because they had to opt in to put their books into Spotify. And I have to think that some people, these publishers are smart enough to be like to ask questions like, well, you're not going to make this part of like a nine ninety nine you know, all you can eat service and stuff like I, I like they have to know more than we know. So, um, you know, it, it doesn't some people were surprised that all these big books got put in there. I wasn't I was I figured it was going to be there. We're going to go to the publishers and have them put their books in. So they came to the table with like, you know, some serious stuff, kind of the opposite of Kindle Unlimited, which depends on indie books. Spotify wants to get the really good, you know, the, the not, I don't want to say good, but you know what I'm saying? Like the really known authors and stuff. And I figured the indies would be a little bit more panicky and hesitant, which is exactly what's happening. So interesting stuff. We'll keep our, uh, keep our eyes on it. I'm sure there'll be uh, developments uh, happening that we'll, we'll talk about. So uh, take care of some business and then we'll get to the guests for the week. Uh, I want to give a shout out to our wonderful friends over there at Kobo Writing Life. Uh, they empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. So if you want to set your own prices, keep all your rights, get monthly promotional opportunities, all without any exclusivity, you can do that by using the link in the show notes or by going to KoboWritingLife.com. JD, who is up on the guest spot this week? All right. This week, we've got Jeffrey Archer. He's one of the world's best-selling authors. Sales are over 275 million copies in 97 countries. That's insane. Um, his latest title is called Next in Line and releases September 27th. Here he is, Jeffrey Archer. Well, Jeffrey, given the time we're recording this, uh, I, I figured we could start um, by asking you just a little bit about your thoughts on on the Queen. Well, she's a, she was a truly amazing lady who gave service for 70 years of her life. And as you will have seen 
from the television. I mean, just adored by the British people. And uh, I, I, I know it's a silly thing to say, I wish she was alive to see how much she was admired. Uh, but even I have been surprised by the numbers and surprised by the adoration, richly deserved. V very much so. Uh, you know, I uh, being in the United States, uh, clearly we have a, a you know a somewhat different perspective, but I would say a fascination with the royal family. Uh, and uh, the Queen seemed to be a, a fairly private person. Uh, do you think your your new king is going to um, be in the same vein? He seems to be a little more outspoken. I think he was outspoken when he was the Prince of Wales, but from a speech he made yesterday, I'm bound to say he he now realised he has the mantle of the crown. He's no longer His Royal Highness, he's now His Majesty, and therefore I suspect those very firm opinions and very well thought out opinions will not be as forthcoming. Uh, I suspect he watched his mother very carefully indeed and saw that her strength was that quote one paper, which I like very much indeed, because she was never in fashion, she was never out of fashion. I thought that was a lovely description. V very much so, very much so, yes. Uh, well, we're here to talk about your, your new book, comes out uh, September 27th. It's the new William Warwick novel called Next in Line. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, Next in Line is, as you say, a William Warwick novel. In the, in the William Warwick novels, and you can pick up any one, you don't have to pick up the latest, but he starts life as a constable on the beat in uh, London, in the Metropolitan Police, uh, having defied his father who wanted him to go to Oxford and read law and become what we call a barrister. Uh, he defied that. And in each book, you will see him at a different rank. So you will see him to begin, begins life as a constable, then he becomes a sergeant, then an inspector, then a chief inspector, then a superintendent, right the way up to the commissioner for the Metropolitan Police. And with each book, you get a different crime. So he starts life, it's art fraud. He then goes in the second book when he's a sergeant to uh, drugs. He then goes to murder. But in this latest book, he's doing royalty protection. And he and his team are guarding the royal family. And in particular, his number two, Ross Hogan is the personal protection officer for Princess Diana. <clears throat> and because I knew her quite well and worked with her, I was able to get in some personal stuff. Phenomenal. Uh, that was uh, one of my follow-up questions was going to be your decision to, to place the story in, in, I believe it was 1988. Um, and, uh, and, and with Princess Diana. So can you talk about some of the, the elements or the aspects of her personality or your relationship with her that you felt were important to incorporate into the story? Well, I think if you're going to write about someone, the reader wants to know you knew them. It's not just historic. I have the privilege of working with many of her charities. My hobby is as a charity auctioneer. And I have over the years... Uh, done over a thousand charities and raised $70 million. So it's a good hobby. And that's how we came into contact with each other. And over the years, I think from her letters and 
uh, from her private visits, both to her home and to mine, uh, we became friends. And so I hope to get into Next in Line. I hope to get that feeling into the book. The critics so far have been saying uh, he so clearly knew her and knew her well. That's a wonderful compliment to get. Yes, it's very pleasing. It's always, it's always pleasing when they praise the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you spoke of your uh, the path of your protagonist and sort of growing that character up, up through the ranks. Uh, was that your plan when you first started writing those novels? Yes. I had always thought it was an interesting and genuinely original idea to take someone from Constable on the beat in London through to Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. I will have to live to the age of 86 for him to become Commissioner, because he's still only, in the latest book, he's still only uh, a superintendent, so there are several ranks to go, uh, but I'm enjoying it immensely, having great fun out of it. But as I said, each book is an individual. This one is about royalty protection, but they all have their own basis, and he's at a different rank. And uh, yes, you're right. It, uh, right. Actually, I, I think I thought that out from the beginning. <laughs> well, uh, that's a uh, th that leads me to uh, something that um, most of our listeners find very fascinating, which is writing process. So um, you had the scope for, for William Warwick um, from the beginning. What does your novel planning uh, look like? Do, do you think about the story ahead of time or do you just kind of sit down and whatever comes out, comes out? It's varied over the years, but most of the time I roughly know what's going to happen in the first chapter, get myself into the second chapter and start praying. I think I am actually an old-fashioned storyteller. And on the process of writing, uh, I rise at 5.30 in the morning. I work from 6 to 8 for two hours. I work from 10 till 12 for two hours. I work from 2 to 4 for two hours. I work from 6 to 8 for two hours. I'm in bed by 9.30, 10, up again the next day at 5.30. The first draft usually takes... 50 days, 300 hours, and the draft you have in front of you uh, is the 14th draft. I wish after all these years there was a shortcut, but I'm afraid there isn't. So can you, can you explain how you came to the two-hour uh, two segment of time to do your work? As a young man, when I was at university, uh, I was an athlete and took it very seriously indeed and I had the great privilege and honor of running for my country. And so I suspect the training and the preparation for a race were embedded in me before uh, I took up writing. And then I went into the House of Commons at the age of 29, which is an equally demanding job where hours on and hours off are particularly important. And I think that suits me. Uh, I'm a lark by nature. My wife is an owl by nature. She can start work at 10 o'clock at night and work through till one or two in the morning. I couldn't do that. I wouldn't even be able to stand up. But she doesn't like getting up at 5.30 in the morning. So I am a lark and it's worked and I'm not gonna change the process. And before you ask, I write every word by hand. Oh. 
I can't use any machinery. You saw Alison setting you up and getting me ready. If it had been me, I can tell you, Jay, we would never have met. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. Uh, I, you, you know, you're you're not um, the first author who told me that, that they handwrite their drafts. Um, I, I'm fascinated by the by the process. Uh, do you use a shorthand? Are you using cursive? Do you print? Well, what what are the mechanics like? I literally handwrite. I couldn't do shorthand. I'm not capable of it. I, uh, printing would take too long for me. No, I literally write each word word for word. Uh, and how does how does the handwritten word eventually make it into a, a word processor or a computer? Well, Alison, who you've just met, uh, she gets to see it before anyone else. And she types up a first draft, which is triple spaced. And then I work on it with a pencil. So that the what I call the fourth, third, fourth draft, there with a pencil on the typewritten paper. And as it progresses, it goes from three triple spacing to double spacing to single spacing. And that's about 14 drafts. That's about nine months. And that's when the publisher has shown it. Wonderful. It, it sounds as though you you have this system that really works for you uh, and it's working well and you're very prolific and you've sold a lot of books. Uh, how long did it take you to, to figure this out, to come to, to, to this system that really works for you? I think it works. You work towards it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you find something that works and if it does work, you stay with it. And yes, you're kindly, you kindly mentioned now having sold 275 million books uh, that process works for me and I'm not going to change it. <laughs> I should hope not. Uh, a number one bestseller in fiction, short stories and, and nonfiction. It seems as though you're quite a versatile writer as well. Well, it, the big breakthrough came with Cain and Abel and a hundred pe million people have now read Cain and Abel. That was my third book. And, uh, I mean, I, I think then the important thing at my age at 82 is that you've got to still love doing it. If it becomes a bore, I would say to anybody, if it becomes a bore, pack it up and go and do something else. But I'm still loving it. I'm still loving William Warwick's, what he's doing, where he's going, uh, what his next challenge will be. And in this one, next in line with Princess Diana, uh, that was a, a special challenge and loved every moment of it. Mm. I wonder if for a moment you can take us back to the time in your life when you were uh, writing and, and then publishing Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less. Can you tell us what was happening there and how you were inspired uh, for that book? Well, I, I, I was a member of parliament and I very foolishly invested in a company called Aquablast on the advice of the Bank of Boston. And I'm afraid I lost everything. So left the House of Commons at the next election and sat down and wrote my first book, not a penny more, not a penny less. The story of four young men who between them lose a fortune and find out who's stolen it from them and decide to steal every penny back. But they mustn't go over the top because that would be stealing. They're only allowed to take back that which was taken from them. So that all first books, Jay, are autobiographical. So that was really what happened to me. Of course, I didn't get my money back. And actually, the first book, uh, I got a three thousand, about a five thousand dollar advance, and sold three thousand copies. And my wife said, "It's time for you to go and get a proper job." 
But I battled on and along came the third book, Cain and Abel, which of course changed my whole life. Yes, yes. Had you had you been a writer or written anything prior to Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less? No, I'd been a speaker. I, I, I loved public speaking, being a member of parliament. And uh, I enjoyed reading stories, but no, it had never crossed my mind that it would be the profession I ended up doing. I wanted to be captain of the England cricket team, which you poor Americans wouldn't begin to understand. I wanted to be prime minister. I failed hopelessly, took up writing and got very lucky. But then as Proust reminds us, we all end up doing the thing we're second best at. <laughs> uh, very clever. Uh, you, um, I know that you're not actively uh, in, in politics these days, but you, you had a, a long career in politics. Uh, what, what was one thing or uh, uh, something you've learned in politics that you've been able to use in your writing? Well, of course, you meet so many interesting people. It was a great privilege to work for uh, Margaret Thatcher for 11 years and for us to be close friends, both my wife and myself. If my wife's a, a chemist, currently chairman of the uh, Science Museum in Great Britain, and they both went to the same college at Oxford at Somerville. So there was a, a close connection between my wife and Margaret Thatcher. I, of course, had the privilege of being her bagman on the ground, trying to win elections for her. Uh, so, And you can't meet the sort of people I've met over the years, had the privilege of meeting. Uh, without a lot of it getting into the books. It's, uh, it was a, a theory I've been developing for a few years, and it, it seems as though you're validating it for me, which is it seems as though the best way to write great characters is to get yourself out into the world and to interact with as many interesting people as you can find. Yes, I found that came really convincingly to me when we were going through covid when I wasn't meeting anybody and I wasn't getting any stories or any sort of real uh, traction. And as soon as I came out of COVID, I had three stories within a month. So yes, you're quite right, Jay, quite right. Hmm. Hmm. It's, I would imagine that given your, your experience uh, in, in not, not just in writing, but in life, you, you have to really sift through story ideas to find the one that you really want to work on. Uh, do you have a process for that? Do you have some way of deciding which, which idea is going to become a book? No, I think it's very obvious when a good idea comes along, when something hits you between the eyes. Uh, the protecting Princess Diana and the relationship between the protection officer and uh, the wife of Prince Charles. I, I didn't have to think much further than that, uh, Jay. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you, um, that you get questions from uh, inexperienced authors or, or younger authors looking for some kind of advice or, or wisdom from you. Uh, what's, what's something you typically say to, to a younger or more inexperienced writer? Go to the ballet and watch very carefully the prima ballerina and remember how many hours she has spent trying to be the prima ballerina. Then look at the dancers behind and work out how many hours they've spent just getting onto the stage. And then think about the thousands of young women who would like to be on that stage dancing. And then say to yourself, I want to be number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. 
it's just as difficult. <laughs> Yes, uh, it, it seems as though you're you're still up for the challenge. It doesn't seem like you have any intention of uh, of stopping. No, absolutely no slowing down at all, Jake. <laughs> we're getting on with it, and we're loving every moment. I'm very excited about next in line. That's that's fantastic. Uh, have you have you started the the next book in the series? Yes, I have. I've just begun the new book uh, in the series, and it involves Her Majesty the Queen and something that happens uh, in London. And but, and then he will be a chief superintendent, William Warwick. All right. One step closer to the ultimate goal. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, in, in doing some of my uh, my research for the, for the interview, I, I saw that you had a, a podcast. Is that still running? No, that's finished. Ah, okay, okay. wasn't I wasn't sure on that. That was you. you certainly have the 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 presentation and 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 the voice uh, to to be a wonderful podcaster. So I wasn't surprised when I saw that. <laughs> uh, well, Jeffrey, this is uh, this has been a, a a lovely conversation. I think maybe a great way that we could uh, wrap it up is. Um, I would love to hear, uh, obviously, the William Warwick novels. But generally speaking, what are you really excited about these days? Many, many things. But I think when you write a new book, I'd like to say to anybody thinking about writing a book, I'm on my 27th now, and it's just as exciting. I get just as thrilled. And as we approach uh, publication day, just as nervous that no one will buy the book. And that happens every single time. And then I have my auctioneering, which I love. And perhaps best of all, so many good friends. I think at the end of a long life, you realize that good friends are actually more important than anything else. Oh, man, what a character, huh? We, we, got, we, get, we get some real characters coming on the show. Jeffrey Archer is something else. Um, J.D., I want to start with you on this. Two hundred. The guy sold 275 million books. Like, how, how does that change his approach to writing and publishing, or does he not even care at this point? It sounds like he doesn't care. Um, you know, he, he mentioned uh, Cain and Abel, which was his, his second or third book. I forget which one he said, but that one particular title has sold 100 million copies, or at least the, the series related to it. I think there's three books in that series. Um, yeah, I mean, from a process standpoint, I don't know if he's superstitious or what, but you know, he's still writing everything out by hand and you know, handing that off to somebody else to transcribe and put in a computer. Um, I, I know a couple authors that actually do the triple space thing, and you know, it just allows them to you know, just have enough room to, to write their notes, um, and then they tend to shrink it. They all seem to follow that. They start with triple space, and they go to double, and then go to single to basically see what it looks like on the paper. Um, anybody who's never edited that way should probably give it a try. Um, you don't have to go through the whole handwriting thing, but you know, actually editing a physical copy in your hand in you know, a printed copy I think makes a, a world of difference versus trying to do it on your your computer so there's that um, my first note was this guy is just really British <laughs> I mean like when when I think British guy like the, that is the accent that is like I, I wanted to go out and get some tea like as soon as I, I finished listening 100% to him. <laughs> that's yeah, what I thought but too. you know like 80, 82 years old and like he, he ran through his schedule I mean he, this guy is not slowing down yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. The, uh, you know, what you brought up too, I, I want to handwrite a book so bad, like, I, but I just can't bring myself to do it. Like, just cause I always think about the transcription part of it and I don't want to pay someone to do that, you know? Uh, but the editing, 
I've done that with short stories and I really want to do that with a novel because I a hundred percent agree with you. Like it, it's so funny, just the change of like being from a screen to just actually having to print out on paper. I know Joanna, I think she edits all her manuscripts like that, right? Yeah. Jay's nodding. So, um, we, and, and I love that. Um, and, and so I, I really feel like that's something that I, I want to do more of that. And I also, uh, feel like something else I should do is have, um, uh, have my computer read stuff back to me. So, cause, cause a lot of times when you hear it, um, whether you say it out loud or like, you know, you can go in and and make it, read it back to you, uh, especially dialogue and stuff that helps so much. Like when you actually just hear it, uh, especially with dialogue, like I said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he doesn't seem to want to try tech, um, which I, I get, <laughs> you know, like I, I know a couple of the older guys that have been doing this for a while that, you know, again, the same boat, like they just, they've got somebody who does that sort of thing. You know, James Patterson, like he's got an assistant who does his email. Like, as far as I know, he doesn't have an email account of his own. He's got somebody who receives his email and she either reads it to him or prints it out and hands him paper copies. Um, I actually got her coffee mug one year that says I'm James Patterson's email. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was honestly surprised when you said that he had a podcast because, you know, somebody- too, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure. Yeah, he doesn't anymore, right? It it kind (laughs) of killed the follow up, but yeah, I I did find that. So at one point, he did have a podcast. I also I really liked when you guys talked about um, books being autobiographical. I thought that was really interesting, and 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 him talking about how hard it was for him to write during COVID for a reason that I've heard no one else say. Every everyone said it was hard for them to write during COVID quarantine because they were depressed or whatever they were like their, you know, wife was around too much or whatever, you know, their partner or whatever. But he was like, he, he said, because I couldn't get out and be inspired by seeing other people and talking to meeting people and stuff like that. I thought that was really interesting. And, um, and I can relate to that because that's part of the reason that, um, you know, I work in coffee shops a lot. I, I, I work in coffee shops probably about three days a week. Um, and that's a big reason why I just like to get and be around people. And I, uh, I watch, I listen, you know, and stuff. And I really, and for me, it's very, very, um, inspiring, you know, to, uh, to, to do that. I want to, I want to say something that could be considered somewhat controversial, uh, oh, but surprise. I think there's, a, I think there's Shocker. an element of truth to this. And, and it was, it was really what Jeffrey was talking about. And I, you know, I, pr- I pressed him on it and he agreed with me, which is, I think a big part of telling, of becoming a great storyteller is, is connecting with people and having uh, a lot of experience with other people. And I think that comes with years. And I, and I, so here's, here's the controversial part. Maybe I kind of feel like older writers might be better storytellers because they've just had more minutes. They've had more opportunities to engage with other people. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, no, I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, it, <laughs> but yeah, um, the youngest guy here speaks up the, the youngest guy with the grayest hair and no, no hair on top. Of no hair, no hair. hair on top of my head and the gray beard. Um, but no, I, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's, um, I've told younger writers that before where, um, you know, younger than me, even, you know, like saying people in their twenties and stuff, it's like, you just haven't lived enough. <laughs> like you just haven't, uh, you know, and it sounds really old fogey, but, um, a, a lot, you're right. I think as you go on, you meet more people, you have more life experience. Um, I totally agree. I think that a hundred percent affects your storytelling. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's that and, you know, also just the practice. I mean, he's got more time behind the, you know, in his case, the pen or, you know, but it could be just as easily the computer, the typewriter, whatever. Um, but he's just got more more hours, you know, just, just like anything else. The more time you put into it, the better you get. Yeah. And, and you know, and in Jeffrey's case, uh, you know, he's interacting with uh, the Queen and Princess Diana and Margaret Thatcher. So that that is clearly going to make his his writing uh, unique. <laughs> well, it's real similar to the crowd you hang with, right? Exactly. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, the, the Duke and Duchess were, were, were kind of tight, but uh, <laughs> no, it was, it was, uh, it was really an honor to be able to, to talk to, to, to an author of, of that stature and, and that level of, of success. And, uh, you know, hopefully we, uh, everyone learned uh, a, a bit more about uh, what it takes to have a, a, a long and uh, prosperous career. Uh, so JD, what do we got up next week? I think we got something special, right? Yeah, this one's going to be a, a very different from any, anything we've ever done. So Harlan Coben um, through ITW, International Thriller Writers, um, they, they do a, an, an anthology pretty much every year, every other year or so. Um, and he was in charge of the latest one, and it's called Birds of Prey. Um, they actually sold it to Audible, uh, speaking of audiobooks, um, as an exclusive. Um, so I think there's a year or so that audio, uh, Audible is going to have it before it's allowed to come out in print. Um, it releases October 6th. Um, so we've got a, a slew of the authors that actually appear in that anthology coming on. Um, you know, it was created by Harlan Coben. I think Heather Graham is going to be here, Tess Gerritsen. Um, I'm honestly not even sure how many of them we're, we're going to have. I'm guessing four or five, but um, it, it should be a really fun panel discussion with that kind of group. Yeah, excellent. Just don't look for it on Spotify. <laughs> 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 Uh, hey, if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.